Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Well, we're here in Matthew chapter number 2 this morning. I want to consider some of the portions of Scripture that are before us. Uh, I think there's perhaps no greater passage in all of Scripture uh, concerning the nativity and that time frame of our Lord um, that equally is yet so misunderstood as this passage that deals with the three wise men. Or I should say, that is why we misunderstand it. Uh, often, we are told that in fact there are three wise men. Yet, in Scripture, there's never an indication of how many wise men at all. I suppose the number three comes from the fact that they bought, brought with them three gifts, that of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We don't know that there were three. The scripture does not say that anywhere. In fact, uh, it is believed that uh, we know the name of the wise men. Uh, I have to get help here and refer to my notes, but Casper and um, Balthazar Melchor. Yet the interesting thing is you won't find those names relating to the wise men in the scriptural account at all. Sometimes it's believed that at least one of them uh, was Ethiopian. And that comes from the fact that supposedly these three wise men, as were supposed, uh, in fact represented all of the sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And hence one of them was Ethiopian. That's how they get it. The scripture does not mention that in the slightest. Often it's believed that the three wise men arrived at the nativity manger and they were present there. Uh, one of my favorite pastimes, I, I like this time of year, all the lights and things that accompany it. And um, sometimes we'll, as a family, load up and go to look at lights. But I particularly like a good manger scene. But at most of them, at the overwhelming most of them, you have the three wise men present. Equally, you sometimes have camels and shepherds and things of that nature. And that's what is thought, but the scripture does not indicate that the three wise men were there at all. In fact, in fact, the opposite is true. Uh, as you note here in the scripture, in verse number 11, they were come into the house. They saw the young child with Mary, his mother. I think that you'll note a few distinctions between the manger scene and a house. The manger scene was kind of in a barn, but here when they meet the Lord, they're in a house, not the manger scene. When they meet the Lord, it's referenced in verse number 11 that he was a young child. Yet we know in the manger of Bethlehem that he was an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes. I'll give you a third one that is consideration of why there's, these are a distinction in timing. Um, is eight days after our Lord was born, the scripture record that they went into the temple. And that was in obedience to the law of God. And they were to offer a sacrifice upon the altar because of the gift of a child. This was something, a requirement that every parent would do on the eighth day. And you'll remember in the eighth day that that's where they meet uh, Anna, who uh, was this aged lady in Simeon. All that occurs in the temple, but it was eight days old, specifically eight days old. And I mention that because the gift that they bring the Lord is either two turtle doves or two pigeons. That's what the scripture says. And the scripture says, according to the law, they were to bring these. Well, uh, the reality of the scriptures is there was a third gift that could be brought, and that was that of a lamb. But depending on your fiscal status of life, determined what your gift was going to be. If you were one with great wealth, you could bring and should bring your best, should be a lamb. 
But if you had not that expense, a turtle dove or a pigeon, which were far more economically friendly than a lamb, was allowed. The scripture there in mentions, if you cross-reference up the Old Testament. Uh, I find it interesting that there Luke indicates that they gave something that the poor folk could have given. And if the wise men had arrived at the nativity bearing their three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, it would seem to me that they would not have needed to give the least expensive options, but no doubt could have taken of the gold that they were given and got something of greater resource for it. The time frames are different. I think as you look in scriptures, the only thing you know in all of the scriptures relating to these wise men and to the star, uh, as the scripture mentions that they follow, are found here in these 12 verses of Matthew chapter number 2. It's the only facts that you know. Yet equally in Matthew chapter 2, you have a great parallel between two groups, I'll put it that way, of individuals. Uh, in this passage, you have a group of nobility, these magi. They were not magicians in the sense of how we contrive magicians today. Uh, they were not astrologists giving to divination, but rather were astronomers. Uh, astronomers, And they looked for season and time and purpose and often looked with this the prophecies that had been given. Uh, this were these magi, these wise men that were given. In the ancient time, particularly in the regions of Parthia, uh, which is now in the area of Arabia and Iran and Iraq and that area, many of these magi descended from individuals of Persian and perhaps uh, Neo-Babylonian descent. Daniel chapter 2 mentions that Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah were quartered together with this group of wise men. The idea, the magi, a group of magi, not the same as Matthew. Daniel 2 is not the same as Matthew. But the idea is through that extenuation of years. Uh, I would reference probably 500 years that groups of magi had come and gone. And they had been born and trained and they had lived and labored and died just like all would do in life. And these magi in the time of Babylonia were considered some of the wisest and most cunning of men. They had an understanding, they had knowledge, they uh, understood best the sciences, etc. And when, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar had his great dream that he forgot and wanted to know the interpretation thereof, he threatened all the wise men that they needed to be able to give the dream and the interpretation thereof. And what brought Daniel into the mix and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah into the mix was the singular fact that they were concluded as part of the wise men. That was the whole reason they were in Babylon, because they were skillful men. They were wise men. They were, if you will put it in this sense, the cream of the crop that Israel had to offer. And when Nebuchadnezzar took away the three captivities, he did not take the common folk. He took some of the academia. He took the educated. He took the skilled. He wanted the best. I might would note in most countries when they're dealing with immigration, do they not also look for the greatest and the best? That is usually the case. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. And Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael, these young intelligent men, were brought with it. Hence is why they were associated with these wise men of Babylon. And all of them were to be slain, including Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, if they could not produce the dream and the interpretation. And you'll remember from Sunday school classes that God gives the wisdom. And he tells not only the dream, but the interpretation thereof. And Daniel is spared, and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are spared, in addition to all the wise men. These wise men here in Matthew chapter 2 are from the east, that area of Parthia, 
that area of Persia and the Medes, that area of Babylon, that's from whence they came. Not magicians in the sense that we think of, but rather cunning wise men with great purpose to understand seasons and times. They are men that will involve themselves and revolve around kingdoms and thrones. They will help in the establishment of decrees and accords and alliances as almost like a cabinet member of a state government, of, of even in our sense a federal government will do. That was the purpose of these wise men. And yet you'll notice another group that is present, namely I would mention Herod uh, by moniker, sometimes referred to by his given name Antipas, and sometimes by definition uh, that he preferred called Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great is mentioned here, and not just him only, but the princes of Judah. And the reference we will give here in the scriptures, it talks about the scribes and all that are present. This is the chief priest and scribes of the people in verse number four. These are Herod's, if I can accentuate it this way, his cabinet members. And we find great things to be written in the annals of history about Herod. Uh, I would note of Herod, his father was an Edomite an Idumean, the scripture would make mention of. His mother uh, is likely considered a descendant of Eleazar Maccabees, uh, an offshoot of the Maccabees that would establish the Hasmonean dynasty uh, that would rule from uh, maybe 160, 140 B.C. to about 63 B.C. They'd rule for uh, just, just under about 80 or 90 years. The Hasmonean dynasties would be a series of kings. And one of those daughters of those five kings would marry uh, an Idumean, and through that uh, marriage union was brought about Herod Antipas. Herod's greatest skill set was he was a great politician. He knew who to talk to, when to talk to him, and how to talk to him. And through cunning, had himself in favor with the right people at the right time. Uh, early in his life, in his early years, he made friends with one Julius Caesar. And of course, that would greatly influence him being appointed. He did not deserve to do so. He had no right to the Hasmonean dynasty. But when Rome conquered the Hasmonean dynasty, they wanted someone they could trust. And it just so happened that there was this Idumean named Herod. And Herod was present. And Herod knew the right things, the right people, the right places. And Julius Caesar was his friend. Also, a man by the name of Mark Antony was his friend. And through the cunning and association he had, he was able to get himself promoted to becoming governor of Galilee, which is the northern realm of Israel, in 47 B.C. Sometime after that, the last of the Hasmonean kings is conquered. And uh, he's conquered by Pompey, one of the other former great generals of Rome. And Antipas made good. And with the Parthians, the same area from which the Magi perhaps are from, he forms a political alliance and has himself appointed to be something of a tectarch, something of a ruler of the lower areas uh, around 37 B.C. And so by that time, you've got a man that had no right to a royal throne at all. And now through alliances, he's the head of the Galilee area, the Judean area, and the Transjordan area. He's built himself a little kingdom. He's done it with sleight of hand, He's done it with cunning alliances. And we'd be remiss if we did not acknowledge history that he has done it with barbaric, barbaric, punitive action when necessary. He covets this throne. 
He is, in his estimation, the king of the Jews. And he will spend the bulk of his kingdom doing all that he can to preserve his kingdom and to appease the Jews. For if he cannot appease the Jews, he cannot keep the Jews peaceful. And if he does not keep the Jews peaceful, Rome will take the throne from him that they have endowed upon him. And Herod will rule till about 4 B.C. He'll contract an illness. And history says he'll retreat himself to Jericho. And Jericho, he will die after a series of violent bouts with this illness. And his kingdom will be split. To the north will be one son. That son would rule. Antipas of Galilee and Perea will rule until 39 A.D., the entire extensive ministry of our Lord. Uh, to the west will be Philip. You'll remember Philip. Philip's wife would leave him and join unto Herod. And John the Baptist would literally be executed for his public and private objection to this immorality. But Philip would rule in the Transjordan area until his death in 34 A.D., the entire length of our Lord's uh, earthly ministry. And one by the name of Archelaus, the son of Herod, will rule in Judea. In fact, if you'll note in Matthew chapter 2, you pull your eyes down to verse number 22. After these wise men have departed, Herod decrees a massive infanticide of all of those children, particularly boys, two years old. And there's great mourning for the destruction of an entire group because he wanted to get this so-called king of the Jews. And the scripture says uh, that uh, being warned at night, Moses, or rather Joseph, rather, would take Mary, the mother of the child, and Jesus, and he would depart to Egypt. And there would escape this infanticide that was pressed upon them. And the scripture would say later on in verse number 19 that Herod was dead. This is after his death in Jericho, about 4 B.C. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream anywhere between 4 and 1 B.C. He appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Arise, take him into the land of Israel. And in verse 22, Joseph hears that Archelaus did reign. Archelaus reigns from 4 B.C. to about 6 A.D. And Archelaus did not meet the standards of the Roman imperial government. And in 6 A.D. he was replaced by a Roman protectorate, later to be ruled by one Pontius Pilate. So I tell you all this, not so that you can just singularly be informed about history, but rather that you can understand the climatic governmental activity that's occurring all at this one time. You've got a massive tax that occurs in Luke chapter 2. You've got the death of the greatest leader in recent memories of Herod the Great. You have the kingdom being split into three portions of his sons. This is the time to which the Lord is born. But yet while Herod is alive, he'll have no one to take his throne from him. It's interesting as we read the narrative of the text, you find something quite interesting about these wise men. Notice if you will in verse number 2. They come to Herod the king. This is Herod Antipas, Herod the Great. Saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And they mention a few things. They say, number one, we have seen a star in the east. They go on and say in verse number 2, we've come, we have followed the star. And then later, we've come to worship him. By faith, 
These wise men, seeing the star from afar, have began this great journey. And they've traveled through the east and across the Jordan River. And they've come to Herod. And asking Herod, seeing all of this activity that we see, where's the king? I suppose that when these wise men are making their trip, all the while they're considering that surely... Surely they're going to come in and there's going to be the installation or the inauguration or at the very least a coronation of this young king. Surely there would be great fanfare. Surely all of the area would know that this child has been born. Surely all the area would know that he is not just a child, but he is a kingly child. Surely all of them would know that he was coming. And yet I find great interest that the Idumean king here who loved the Jews by his proclamation to an extent, who praised and exalted himself as king of the Jew, seems to be completely oblivious of anything that would have grasped the attention of these magi to travel thus far. Herod's, number one, not even aware that the star exists. He has no awareness. You would think that one of his Pharisees or one of his scribes or one of the chief priests or one of his cabinet members or perhaps one of his sons would have said, Dad, on the way to meet you today, I saw something peculiar in the sky. They did not. In Luke chapter 2, which occurs sometime before the passage in Matthew chapter 2, you have a heavenly host full of angels saying, praising God, glory to God on the highest and peace. Goodwill towards men. You have a host of shepherds that leave from thence and go into Bethlehem to say, let us see this thing which has come to pass. Do you remember all of this? And they come and they see Mary and they see the bab wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in the manger. All of this these shepherds witnessed with their eyes. But they would not stay there in Bethlehem for they would say to themselves, let us tell abroad. Let us tell to others the things which we have seen. And they shed abroad the knowledge that was present. Yet it would seem that that knowledge did not grab at all Herod's ears one iota. He either does not hear or does not receive or chalks up to utter feignness that which the shepherds have seen with their own ears, that that they had witnessed. He's not aware of the heavenly host that appears. He's not aware of the star from the east that many beheld, specifically these wise men. In fact, there's a series of things about Herod Actions he takes at the hearing of this child. Just as the wise men would see and follow the star, just in verse 10 as they would rejoice at the star, and in verse 11 they would worship the child, so Herod has a series of activities. Herod sees no star. Herod is not aware of the birth. And despite the news from the shepherds, despite all of the proclamation that was to become, and Herod, upon hearing that there's actually a child born that would be proclaimed as king of the Jew, Herod seeks about the destruction of a child. And of course, the next thing you find about Herod after the destruction of the child is verse number 19, Herod is dead. Herod's life ends with utter rejection of the Messiah. The Magi continue home rejoicing. You could not find two more stark responses to the birth and subsequent years of Jesus Christ than you can find in this chapter. You find one that should have known, but did not. You find those that should not have known, but did. You find those that worshipped and those that rejected. Those by faith that were looking and those that were oblivious to the facts of the scriptures. Two constant contrasts 
and beholding the glory of the Almighty God. To me, this brings a series of questions. For instance, how did the wise men know to look for a star? Where did that even contrive in their mind? How did they even understand anything? Not, they may have been semantic. They may have been uh, related uh, through uh, intermarriage to perhaps some Babylonians and some Jews. That might have been the case, but most likely they were Gentiles. What means this star? A star is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham is asked if he could number the stars. It's the first time the word star is used in that Old Testament context. It's the first time. Of course, Abraham couldn't number all the stars of the heavens. I'm amazed at the opportunity sometimes that I'll get to leave my home, my neighborhood, and get out to some of these surrounding counties. And I'm not dissing on my neighborhood. There's very much things I like about Dolphin County, but I'll get out beyond. And you go out to certain places, even in Dolphin County, and other counties that surround, and on a good cloudless night, look up and ask your question to your heart that God asked to Abraham. Can you number the scars? Oh, it's impossible. Even with all of the study of astronomy, even with all of the definitive calculations that have been done, humanity has no ability to number the stars. I heard an astrophysicist once, he actually wrote, I didn't hear him, but he wrote, he said of this, he said, if, you could, if, you, if humanity could go to the farthest extent of all the stars they know, if they could be at that point and look from there out, there would be an undiscoverable infinite number of heavenly beings. You know what he's saying? No, you cannot number the stars. That's the question the Lord asked to Abraham. In fact, in keeping with that, three on three separate occasions, twice in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 17, chapter 26 and verse 4, and later in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 13, God makes the statement that Abraham's descendants would be multiplied as the stars of the heavens. Now, Genesis 37, you'll find another account of a star being used. It's a dream that Joseph had, that the sun and moon and stars would bow down and give him obeisance. And his brothers looked upon him and said, Should I, thy father, the sun, the moon, thy mother, and thy brethren bow down to thee? They didn't think so. But as you look through the Old Testament, there's one single verse that should grab your attention. It's found in Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17. And what an odd place for it to be found. There was this king, pagan king named Balak. And Balak very much hated the children of Israel. In fact, I do not think that it's wrong to say he abhorred them. And so he hired a prophet named Balaam, who was Jewish. And he paid him money and he said, I want you to curse Israel. And, Abraham, and Balaam, taking the money from thence, pledged to do so. Yet, every time he went to curse, rather still a blessing came out upon his lips. That was the problem. And Balak said, I've paid for a cursing, and yet you've blessed them. And Balaam said, I can only say those things that God has said. What a foolish thing. What a foolish thing that Balak attempted to do. But after saying thus, Balaam is going to give a prophecy. The scripture says in verse 15, And he took up his parable and said, Balaam 
the son of Peor, hath said, the man whose eyes are open hath said, he, that is God, hath said, who knew the wisdom, or the rather the knowledge of the Most High, who saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance. Balaam now, having his eyes opened, I shall see him, Balaam says in verse 17. But not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy the children of Sheph. To my understanding, that's the only place anywhere in the Old Testament there was any prophecy about a star. But the scripture says a star shall rise out of Judah. That could answer a proportion question how these wise men knew to look for a star. That there was a prophecy of old that there would be a star out of Judah. That brings an interesting question to it. How did they know in which direction to look? Judah's quite the place. Some time frame before the birth of our Lord, before he took on human flesh, Micah penned these words. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, they're reiterated here in Matthew chapter number 2. In verse 5 and 6, But Micah wrote, But thou Bethlehem Euphrata, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me. That is, to be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from old and from everlasting. In fact, when Herod is seeking to find out where this star was seen and where this king of the Jews would be, that's the passage they quote to him. Verse number 5, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. They knew to look. They knew the city to look for. They knew what they were looking for. But friend, they also knew the exact time on when they needed to look. Daniel, the prophet, who prophesied in the land of Babylon and of the Medes and Persia, and had been a wise man, was given a specific prophecy. A specific prophecy of 70 weeks determined upon thy people. An interesting 69 of them would pass before Messiah is cut off. 69 years of sevens. If you will, 483 years were determined. And the command given that Daniel referenced would happen in 445 B.C. That was the time frame in which Cyrus the Great or Ahasuerus would go and give the command of rebuilding the temple, and of rebuilding the city rather, and the walls thereabout, 445 B.C. 69 times 7 is 483 years. When you adjust for the distinction in a solar calendar, it didn't take much to know that the year would be about 32, 33 A.D. They knew when the Messiah was going to die. Friend, if you know when a Messiah is going to die, if you know when somebody's going to die, you know that in order to die, they have to be born first. They had a time frame. It's interesting. They knew when the Messiah was going to be cut off. They had a general frame reference from Daniel. If Daniel's prophecies were at all to be true, they knew the time frame in which the Messiah was going to be crucified. They knew it. You know, it's interesting to know what people know. 
Suetonius, the Roman historian, penned this in his writings. That at the time of the birth of Christ, this is what he's referencing, there had been spread all over the Orient, that area of old, a very well-established belief that it was fated at that specific time during the rule of Herod that one would come from Judah to rule the world. This is a Roman historian speaking. He's looking back, he says, that specific time, it was well established. Everybody said there's going to king be born in Judah and he's one day going to rule the world. That's what a Roman historian wrote. Tacitus, another Roman historian penned in reference to Judea, in reference to the concurrent time of Herod, that there is a firm persuasion At the very time the East was to grow powerful, a ruler would come from Judah to acquire a universal empire. A Jewish historian named Josephus, in his writings under the Jewish wars, reports that the Jews at the time of Herod believed that one from their country would soon become the ruler of inhabitable earth. Here's what I'm telling you. It wasn't just these magi that said, I believe unto us the Son is born. Roman historians believed that is the time. They confirmed, they said, hey, all of the Jews in that area, certainly a bunch of shepherds, was revealed to them. Certain the faithful ones that believed the word of truth. All you had to do was be able to count. All you had to do was be able to spell. And you would know of these prophecies. But there's Herod. Herod seems to be one of a select few that had never heard these things. One of a select few that had no idea about the well-entrenched prophecy of Micah. Herod seems to be the only one unable to count 483 years. It wasn't an inability. It was a blatant refusal. To one group, this mysterious star that is referenced. In verse 9, as they leave the king, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood. It's a very odd behavior for a star to have in the concept of what we think of a nebulous energy uh, entity. It's an odd thing that it would come and lead them and stop. I submit to you that Very likely it was supernatural. If we go back in the Old Testament, you'll find about a light by day that led the people of Israel and stopped at certain points. It's the very glory cloud of the Almighty God. I submit to you that makes a tremendous amount of sense. That God allowed a pinhole of His glory. And that's what they saw. They saw not unlike those in Bethlehem sometime before the illuminating glory of God as the jewel, the diadem of heaven, born incarnation. Really, the doctrine of incarnation is better than the word born. Born has that sense with it that it just began. Incarnation, he is veiled in flesh. He had always existed, but he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and humbled himself, yea, even to the death of the cross, of Christ. Philippians chapter 2. One sees the star and by faith they follow it. 
this star stopping upon the child, upon the house that the child was in, they enter in, they rejoice, and they worship. To them it was a star of hope. To Herod it was a star of nuisance. To one it's a star of faith. To other it's a star of futility. To one it's a star of salvation. To the other it's a sentence of death. Marvelous the mighty contrast that is given. To these magi this star of hope was a promise of peace. Isaiah the prophet had written in Isaiah chapter 1, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as snow. Though they be like crimson, they shall be white as snow. Star of hope was to them a promise of peace. And to you and I that live today, we see the glorious birth of Christ as being one of that promised Redeemer. One in which the peace of God directs us. That peace being a work of the Holy Spirit of God. That peace that gives us access into the very throne of God. That peace that is promised by the Almighty God to those of His children that live here. I am come. I am come. To the Magi, the star of hope was a hope in a Redeemer. Isaiah had penned in the 53rd chapter... The Lord Jesus would be wounded for our transgression, bruised from our iniquity. Verse 6, that the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Marvelous, isn't it? They looked at one that would pay a sin debt. Perhaps they knew something that Herod did not. That a coming Savior that would save his people from their sins. And yet Herod, like so many, is emblematic of John 1, that he came into his own, and his own received him not. Them that received him, God gave them power that they be called the sons of God, especially they that believe on his name. These magi, the star was a star of hope of a redeemer. It was a star of hope for a mediator. And friend, it was a star of hope that it was a deliverer that had come. I think of Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. In the ancient days, in the oriental type, Near East wedding, the groom would come to get his bride. The veil that she wore would be taken up by him and placed upon his shoulder. Had great significance of protection, of provision, of support, of defense. You know, folks don't feel that way about governments if they'll take time to look over the narrative of human history. The east from which these wise men came had seen nothing but war for hundreds of years. They had been conquered by the Medes only to throw off the yoke of the Medes. They'd have to fight against the Greeks and repel the Greeks and constant repelling of various 
uh, excursions that the Roman imperial government would make into the land of Parthians. In fact, one of the triumvirate, one of the great mighty governmental leaders of the Armory Roman Republic was Pompey and Julius Caesar and is a third one. His name always evades me at the most difficult of times. Pompey had conquered so much he was legend walking. Julius Caesar, to make a name for himself, had conquered the Gauls, the unconquerable area. This third member thought that he would conquer the Parthians. In search for gold, he had taken an invasion force deep into the heart of Parthia. He was cut off. And he as an entire group was completely decimated. History records, to be believed or not, I know not, but the Parthians captured him alive. They took molten gold that he had so longed for, poured it down his throat, and that was his form of execution. War had been a constant place in this society. You have the war between the Romans and the Hasmoneans. You have Herod and his various wars. Oh, to think that the prophecy of Isaiah, one in whom a child that the government would rest upon his shoulders, Marvelous indeed. It would be a government of holiness and a government of righteousness and a government of justice. Isaiah would go on and say his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Peace? Redemption? Access? That's hope! That's hope in the darkest of days. That's hope in the greatest of nights. That's hope that one can rest their soul upon with eager expectation. For that's exactly what they had. Their hope was in the God of Daniel. The prophecy that he's coming, he's going to be the deliverer, he is going to be that prophet that comes. He will be the one. He will establish a kingdom and that kingdom shall reign forever and ever and ever. Their hope was eternal, not temporal. Herod's hope was temporal and never eternal. It's no wonder that when these wise men encountered the great I Am, Scripture records they went home another way. They, surely like the shepherds at the nativity, made known abroad the saying which was told to them concerning the child. The Lord did not intend for us to know the conclusion of their lives. But when I get to heaven, when I seek out these wise men, my question will be, I'd sure like to know what happened when they got home. They had given of wealth. They had given of time. They didn't just hop in their Uber and Parthia and arrive in Bethlehem and take a nonstop flight back. That was a tremendous hazard that they assumed to themselves to make this trip. All to worship. I can't believe that they returned solemn, expressionless, hopeless. I can't believe for a moment that they went to their houses and in there on their refrigerators where their magnet was and said, well, that's one thing I always wanted to do. 
chase a star to Bethlehem. Friend, I submit to you, they went back, letting every individual that crossed their paths have an answer to the question of the hope that was in their heart. The star was to them a star of hope. Father, Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.